Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And welcome back to our two-part series on African empires. Last time, we took you through some of the earlier civilizations that we'll be covering that once dotted the African continent. This week, we're going to visit roughly the same regions, but we'll be moving forward in time into the post-classical era. Of course, there, there's going to be some overlapping timelines here. Unfortunately for us podcasters, nobody thought to create a Google calendar to coordinate and organize their civilizations in a sensible and orderly chronological fashion. Somehow we will persevere and we are kicking it off with North Africa. Yeah. And so we're starting off with the uh, Fatimid Caliphate. Yeah. So the Fatimids, who the Arabic were the El Fatimiyun, um, claim descent from Fatima the daughter of Islamic prophet Muhammad. So Fatima, like the hand of Fatima, like the, Mm -hmm. so like the Hamza sign, like the the little hand, the stylized sign of the hand with the hand. That's I'm trying to do it, but my, my pinky finger doesn't. Yeah. Well, but the, the pinky fingers are often curved out. Right. And the thumb is also curved out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a stylized Mm -hmm. hand that looks like almost like a flower. That's a hand of Fatima. That's a Hamza. Um, and it's, it's something that you see uh, a lot in North Africa and, Generally now, um, it's having a moment. I have one. My, my dad got me one years and years ago that is, it's like a silver hand, but the inside of it is Roman, like ancient Roman glass. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with that glass otherwise? I don't know. <laughs> so in 921 CE, the Fatimids established the Tunisian city of Mahdia as their new capital. In 948, they shifted their capital to Al-Mansuria near Kairouan in Tunisia. In 969, so they're moving fast, uh, they conquered Egypt and established Cairo as the capital of their caliphate. Um, so the caliphate is ruled by the Caliph or so, Caliph. so it's same, same like Khalifa. Mm-hmm. So like whiz. Yes. Yes. I knew a pop yes. culture reference. So Khalifa in Arabic is like a ruler, or a king. And so it's mm-hmm. a Caliph. So that's same, same. Yeah, whiz um, king doesn't sound as good. Yep. <laughs> Egypt became the political, cultural and religious center of their empire that developed in that developed an indigenous Arabic culture. So. Um, the ruling class belonged to the Ismaili branch of Shiism, um, as did the leaders of the dynasty. The existence of the caliphate marked the only time that um, those identifying as the descendants of Ali and those descending as the descendants of Fatima were united to to any like significant degree. Um, after the initial conquest, the caliphate allowed a degree of religious tolerance towards non-Ismaili sects of Islam, as well as to Jews, Maltese Christians, and Egyptian Coptic Christians. That's cool. Yeah. Um, after The Fatimids were also known for their exquisite arts. 
Um, mm-hmm. So a type of ceramic, um, lusterware, was prevalent during the Fatimid period. Um, so this ceramic glazing technique uses liquid glazes with metallic oxides in them so that when the pieces are fired, they're opaque, lustrous, and sometimes almost metallic in, exper- in appearance. Um yeah, I'll I'll put some pictures yeah. up on on our Instagram. They're really really like beautiful, very gorgeous. Um, glassware and metalworking was also popular in the Fatimid Empire, uh, but making making glass or metal objects would be more expensive. Um, mm-hmm. And so having the like lusterware is a way to have a more affordable affordable luxury yeah. in your mm-hmm. home. Uh, so there are many traces of Fatimid culture uh, still existing in Cairo today. The most defining examples include the um, Al-Azhar University and the Al-Hakim Mosque. So the Madrasa, so a Madrasa is a like Quranic school. So it's, it's. Um, yeah. Is it always attached a to a mosque or do they exist on their own? Like, are there sort of freestanding <clears throat> Madrasas or. Uh, like physically attached not necessarily, but they're affiliated with a mosque. Mm, okay. Um, okay. Because it's it's like how um, if you go to like a religiously affiliated school, there's usually a there's house a chapel of worship usually on there. Yeah. Like on, that's associated on. with it. So, you know, okay. like because the people who are so like the clergy members are part of the educational staff because this is a right. madrasa. Uh, madrasat were for are like used for teaching about islam um and so the madrasa is one of the relics of the fatima dynasty era of egypt um fatima was called a zahra the brilliant so if you know anybody named like zahra or zahra that means toad's brill yep Mm -hmm. and uh the madrasa was named in her honor so if it's a quranic school were other disciplines taught there as well like and and also since since the madrasa is named for fatima were women or at least women of certain social statuses were they typically educated at this time um traditional islamic education is very like liberal artsy so you okay. would you would be learning um you would be learning like the quran and the hadith uh which is like the collected sayings of the prophet mm-hmm. um and there would be so you know there would be like literacy and penmanship or calligraphy like built in like yeah like that. that makes but sense but what also, about like math also math also astronomy because there's mm-hmm. a because those have like when one is calculating the calendar because it is a lunar calendar and when there are um religious observances that line up with specific days of the lunar calendar year um gotta get those right yeah so um you would have math and science uh because remember like we've we've talked about some um adventure like some big um, strides that were taken in like the islamic sciences and it, it mm-hmm. and it's part of it's sort of like a informed by the faith of like yeah. Trying to like understand the creator more and well, all that stuff. Um, it was nice. So, and so there were other subjects that were taught. So you would be, and, um, and then there's also like music and stuff. So it, it was a school, it was a full on school, but it was a mm-hmm. full on school, um, designed to give one 
of a full, like a well-rounded Islamic education. Um, okay. And uh, I don't know about this period, but I would, I'm going to make an assumption that like in many places, if you have money and like access to resources, you get to go to school. Um, okay. Now the school would probably look different. It would probably be like you would have like a tutor at home or it would be like with your family or it would be at home rather than going away to school. Um, okay. But it would be, but it would be similar because the, there is like in Islam, there is a, like part of it is around like learning and like developing in this way. And it's the, everyone sort of has this obligation to, to doing that. And so, um, so it wouldn't be there, you know, there was, wasn't like co-ed, like learning, like, right. Like, I wasn't not expecting like, not that, like but... co-ed madrasat, but it would be something where, um, there could be access to similar curricula, but it would just looked differently. They like look okay. different. Um, but I don't know. We can find out more about that another time. But yes. Madrasat let's... are very nice. Yes. But once again, let's head West. Let's. So this is the Songhe empire. And that was a state that dominated the Western Sahel in the 15th and 16th centuries CE. And, and the Sahel it was one of the- is? It is the beginning of sub-Saharan Africa. So it is the Arab oh, band. Like, what am I thinking the, of? Duh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so maybe the... The Sahel is the, is the arid band of land that is not the Sahara proper. Um, okay. And so that is where sub-Saharan Africa starts. Okay. So that's the Sahel. This has been Latitudes. <laughs> yeah, our other, other, other podcast where Amber says a word and I try to figure out what geographical term it represents and don't do it correctly. Anyway, the Songhai Empire was a state that dominated the Western Sahel, which we now know what that is, in the 15th and 16th centuries CE. At its peak, it was one of the largest states in African history. The state is known by its historiographical name, and it's that's derived from its leading ethnic group and ruling elite, the Songhai. One of the main cities that became a part of the Songhai Empire was one you may have heard of, Timbuktu. Let's talk about Timbuktu. Starting out as a seasonal settlement, Timbuktu became a permanent settlement early in the 12th century CE. After a shift in trading routes, Timbuktu flourished from the trade in salt, gold, ivory, and mm, slaves. It became part of the Mali Empire early in the 14th century. In the first half of the 15th century, Tuareg tribes took control of the city for a short period until the expanding Songhai Empire absorbed the city in 1468. And then a Moroccan army defeated the Songhai in 1591 and made Timbuktu their capital. These invaders established a new ruling class, the Arma, who after 1612 became virtually independent of Morocco. However, the golden age of the city of Timbuktu, during which it was a major learning and cultural center of the Mali Empire, was over, and it entered a long period of decline. Different tribes governed until the French took over in 1893, a situation that lasted until it became part of the current Republic of Mali in 1960. In its golden age, Timbuktu's numerous Islamic scholars and extensive trading network made possible an important book trade, which is so cool, 
to, uh, together with the campuses of the Sankore Madrasa and Islamic University, this established Timbuktu as a scholarly center in Africa. Several notable historic writers described Timbuktu, and these stories fueled speculation in Europe where the city's reputation shifted from being extremely rich to being mysterious. I, mean, I, heard, um, I heard the Queen of Sheba's from there. Oh, yeah? Yep. Wow. So um, this is a quote from a writer uh, named Leo Africanus, and uh, it's he was writing in in the early 1500s, and then his writings were uh, collected in a compendium called Descrizione dell'Africa in the 1800s. So he wrote so, in Italian? No, he wrote in Latin, but later his works were compiled in an Italian okay. work. So um, this is his his writing. The rich king of Tambuto, which is uh, Tambuto. You know, a, mis, a mishearing, I think, of Tambuto. Tambuto. Hey. The rich king of Tambuto hath many plates and scepters of gold, some whereof weigh 1,300 pounds. He hath always 3,000 horsemen and a great store of doctors, judges, priests, and other learned men that are bountifully maintained at the king's cost and charges. So this is written um, by an African lion. Leo Africanus. <laughs> so these descriptions and passages caught the attention of European explorers, as you might well think they would. And Africanus also described some of the more mundane aspects of the city, such as, quote, the cottages built of chalk and covered with thatch, although these went largely unheeded uh, because nobody wants to read about a cottage when you can read about a king's plates and scepters, apparently. It's, it's also harder to steal a cottage. Yeah, especially if it's built of chalk. Crumbly. <laughs> uh, so about 250 years later, another author uh, named Shabeni um, wrote, The natives of the town of Timbuktu may be computed at 40,000, exclusive of slaves and foreigners. Okay. So, like, probably way more than 40,000. <laughs> 40,000 people. And then outside of that, there are humans that are owned by humans and tourists. For, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Well, let me continue because it's more of the same. <laughs> Don't worry. It doesn't get better. <laughs> nope. The natives are all blacks. Almost every stranger marries a female of the town who are so beautiful that travelers often fall in love with them at first sight. So, come to Timbuktu. Come for the gold. Stay for the ladies. Slaves and foreigners notwithstanding. Notwithstanding, indeed. What's next? All right. Next, we've got Central Africa. Give me some alliteration. We've got the Kingdom of Congo. Uh, <laughs> the Kingdom of Congo was a kingdom located in West Central Africa in what is today Northern Angola, as well as the Western portion of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, as well as the southernmost part of Gabon. At its greatest extent, it reached from the Atlantic Ocean in the west to the Kawango River in the east and from the Congo River in the north to the Kwanzaa River in the south. Verbal traditions about the early history of the country were set in writing for the first time in the late 16th century, which is all well and good. However, the most comprehensive were recorded in the mid-17th century, um, including those written by the Italian Capuchin min missionary Giovanni Cavazzi da Montecuculo. Montecuculo. Possibly Montecuculo. Giovanni Cavazzi da Montecuculo. Okay. Um, See. Si. 
Um, according to Congo tradition, the kingdom's origin lies in the very large and not very rich country of Mpemba Kasi, located just south of modern-day Matadi in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, a dynasty of rulers from this small polity built up its rule along the Kwilu Valley, and its members are buried in Nsikwilu, its capital. Traditions from the 17th century allude to this sacred burial ground. According to the missionary uh, Girolamo de... Jeez. Girolamo de Montesacchio, an Italian Capuchin who visited the area from 1650 to 1652, the site was so holy that looking upon it was a deadly. So now it didn't it didn't specify whether that tradition held that if you looked upon the site, there was the penalty of death or whether it was so holy that looking upon it was just, would just kill you. Yeah, they said, I am literally dead. I cannot even is what he wrote. I cannot even. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> OMG, <laughs> you know, this like we have centuries of oral tradition and like records talking mm. about this place. Um, and so those all exist. So it may surprise you to learn that the kingdom of Congo was discovered in, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> in 1483 by the Portuguese explorer Diogo Cao. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's C-A-O. It might just be pronounced no, cow. No, it's uh, it's cow. Uh, cow. No, I, this was explained to me recently uh, by somebody who speaks Portuguese. Um, the Portuguese explorer... Oh. By the Portuguese explorer Diogo Cao, who sailed up the then uncharted by white people Congo River, finding Congo <laughs> villages and becoming the first European to encounter the Congo Kingdom. Cao left men in Congo and took Congo, well, and stole people. Um, yep. And so, okay. So Cao left hit some of his men in Congo and abducted Congo nobles and took them to Portugal. He returned with the Congo nobles in 1485. So. Which is honestly a lot maybe better. They, <laughs> so, like, maybe they went of their own free will. Like, maybe it was. I, I, I can be hopeful. Hmm, probably not. So, yeah. Okay. So this like sunburned white guy shows up, and he smells terrible, as we have learned from every instance of like early modern European, European showing up places yeah. and being yeah. like, "I'm cool. from a place where they all look and smell like me. Want to come?" And the Congo nobles <laughs> are like. I'm game. Um, so that's our... Yeah, sure, they no one was like, miss me with that. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, a two-year trip... Um, Cruise. ...was um, much better than what a lot of other colonial stories that involve introducing the, the natives to Europe. Um, but at that point, the ruling king converted to Christianity. Yep. So... Okay, so Cal came back to the kingdom with Roman Catholic priests and soldiers in 1491, which seems like the 1490s really were a banner year for sure humans in the world. Um, so he there he what a, what a time to be alive. Yeah. Um, hmm. The so he came back and they baptized the king as well as his principal nobles, starting with the royal the ruler of Soyo the coastal province um so at this point the king of congo took the christian name of zhao in zhao the first what zhao zhao god <laughs> uh, took the name of zhao the first in honor of portugal's king at the time zhao the second 
I know. It's, it's like, yes, this is in tribute to you, but also I'm going to be Joao one. <laughs> okay. So moving eastward to uh, the Ethiopian Empire slash Solomonic Dynasty. Um, so the Solomonic Dynasty, also known as the House of Solomon, is the former ruling imperial house of the Ethiopian Empire. The dynasty's members claim lineal descent from the biblical King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Which also, there is no reason to think that they were a thing. People are really like, people ship them hard. Um, in <laughs> the first book of Kings, when actually she just showed up and was like, huh. And he's like, let me, let me talk. Let me tell you about all this stuff. And she's like, wow, you're smart. Bye. <laughs> well, obviously. They were a thing. Um, tradition asserts that the queen of Sheba gave birth to Menelik I after her biblically described visit to Solomon in Jerusalem. In 1270 CE, the Zagwe dynasty of Ethiopia was overthrown by Yakuna Amlak, who, who claimed descent from Solomon and reinitiated the Solomonic error, uh, not error, the Solomonic era of Ethiopia. The dynasty would last until 1974, ended by a coup d'etat and deposition of the emperor Haile Selassie. So among the Rastafari movement, whose followers are estimated to number between 700,000 and 1 million people, Haile Selassie is revered as the returned messiah of the Bible, God incarnate. Um, and so this movement, which began in Jamaica in the 1930s, perceived Haile Selassie as a messianic figure who would lead a future golden age of eternal peace, righteousness, and prosperity. Um, and Haile Selassie, I mean, he was a real person, and he was an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian throughout his life, and um, he was he was assassinated. Um, that's an interesting story all its own, actually. Um, maybe we should read into that. The Rastafari movement started in the 30s, and then at some point, Haile Selassie came to Jamaica, and everyone was like, Mah! and then he went back to Ethiopia, but then there was a coup, and he was killed. Wow. Yeah, it's a really interesting story uh, that I know only a little about, so it's one of those Anna's half-remembered <laughs> facts from my coffee table book. So... In general, the Solomonic dynasty was a bastion of both Judaism and later of Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity. So Ethiopian Judaism is fascinating and deserves an episode all its own. So we will put a pin in that for a later time. So they were doing um, this for 700 years? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's a long time. So it's claimed that the Solomonic dynasty ruled Ethiopia as early as the 10th century BCE, although there is no historical evidence to support this claim. Records of the dynasty's history were supposedly maintained by the Ethiopian Orthodox monasteries to near antiquity. However, unfortunately, if those records did exist, most were lost as a result of the destruction of Orthodox monasteries around 960 CE. So that's a bummer. It's, it's a shame that we don't know more about that. Yeah. That was a cool little piece of a little callback to Queen of Sheba stories from episode one of this series. Part one. Okay. What's next? Okay. Yeah. Now, part, part now we're one. heading south, going back to Southern Africa to the kingdom of mm -hmm. Mutapa, um, which was, which the kingdom of Mutapa, which lasted from around 1430 CE to 1760-ish CE. Um, it spread across parts of what is now Lesotho, Mozambique, South Africa, Eswatini, which uh, formerly Swaziland, uh, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Great Zimbabwe. 
No. Zimbabwe's great. Zimbabwe. <laughs> the Matapa Empire encompassed a truly staggering portion of Southern Africa. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm staggered. Are um, you not staggered? No, I'm, I'm more terraced. Okay, well, from the Limpopo and Zambezi rivers to the Indian Ocean coastline, its territory was so large that if it were around today, it would stretch across parts of six southern African nations. Legend has it. Here we go with the legend. A warrior prince <laughs> from the kingdom of Zimbabwe established the kingdom of Utapa. Though within a generation, Mutapa eclipsed the glory that was great Zimbabwe and its surroundings. Sounds like someone from Mutapa wrote that. Yeah, yeah. In the pocket of Big Mutapa. Um, mm. By the 15th century CE, the Kingdom of Great Zimbabwe, which, remember, was established around 1100 CE, was in decline, and any links with the lucrative coastal trade of the Swahili coast had ceased. This may be because gold deposits had run out in the territory controlled by the kingdom. Um, but then again, additional factors may have included overpopulation, overworking of the land. Um, so... Like it would also be like hypersalination of the soil, making like yeah. for bad soil and deforestation, which would lead to food shortages, which were perhaps brought to a crisis point by a series of drought. It's a drought storm, yeah, um, or lack of storms. So the Shona thus formed a new state, which was the Kingdom of Utapa, um, and somewhere around 1450 CE, but. It could be less a matter of like general population movement coming up from the south and more just like the ruling elite of Zimbabwe just changing their state capital. So, right. So, it, we don't know about that warrior prince story. Yeah. The, the founder and first Mutapa king was um, Niatsimba Mutota. According to Shona oral tradition, Mutota had been sent to investigate the land around the north bend of the Zambezi River, and he came back with the great news that it was uh, plentiful in salt and wild game. You know what that means? We will establish our jerky, jerky empire. empire. I was like, jerky? <laughs> um, <laughs> the second king, Mutota's son, Nyanhewe Matope, would expand the kingdom even further, capturing both land and cattle. What more do you need? So he he conquered the cattle. Um, by the second half of the 15th century CE, the Bantu-speaking Shona peoples had migrated a few hundred kilometers, so a few hundred miles, uh, northwards from yeah. <laughs> Great Zimbabwe to a land where they displaced the... I, I Yeah, I think that's an okay word. No, I because... just like... No, like okay, so the, this next line is, they displaced the indigenous pygmies and smaller tribes. And I was like, even smaller? No, not physically smaller. The tribe, the number of people was yeah. smaller. So, okay. So to a land where they displaced the um, indigenous population um, yeah. who fled to the forest and desert. Because that's where what else there was. Yeah. Um, the exact relationship between Great Zimbabwe and Mutapa is not known other than that archaeology has shown both kingdoms had very similar pottery, weapons, tools, and luxury manufactured goods like a jewelry. Um, the, the, the chiefs or kings or the leaders of the Shona held the royal title, Mwene Mutapa, uh, meaning either Lord of Metals, thank you, or Master Pillager. Um, and they were too the religious head of the kingdom. So, okay. Um, they wore or carried as their badge of office, a hoe and spear made of gold and ivory. King now I don't know if that's 
two implements or a hoe with a very pointy other side? Oh, like a multi-tool. Yeah, I don't um, know. Kings lived in an enclosed compound with separate buildings for the queen and another group of, of buildings for royal attendants. These attendants were typically males under 20 years of age who came from the families of subjugated tribal chiefs. So they were basically political hostages, um, though they mm-hmm. were relatively well treated. Um, their presence guaranteed compliance with the Mutapa rule. So they were... Right, so you don't have tribes revolting because you have their sons. Yeah, so they are collateral. Mm-hmm. Human um, collateral. Yep. Uh, when these young males were of the age to become warriors, they were sent home and given parcels of land or their own regions to govern to ensure their future loyalty. Now, this um, is in no way different. You know, there there is history from lots and lots of different cultures of sort of exchange of children between different polities that are sort of on shaky often, ground with one another. And often it's a matter of um, exchange of children in marriage. Yes. And so you... Yeah, or like fostering a a, yeah. a child from... So this is yeah. An, another... Yeah, this is some um, diplomacy in action. Mm. Uh, the king of Mutapa ruled as an absolute monarch. I put the emphasis on that weird... Um, he was an absolute monarch. <laughs> uh, uh, and he had all sorts of officials to delegate things to. <laughs> okay. The um, dream. God, right? Um, these included the head of the army, the chief musician, the chief of medicine, a head spirit medium, and the royal doorkeeper. Um, in matters of government, a king could call on the advice of nine ministers, um, known as the king's wives. They were not all, and that's they. They were not all wives, or even women. Women. Yeah, yeah. So, so they were like, just collectively so, called the king's wives. It's it's like in American Vandal season two when he talks about his boys, <laughs> oh, and one of his boys is a girl. <laughs> yeah. So the king's wives is like a, a gender inclusive term. Yes, yeah, it's just like these are my dudes. Yeah. Um, the queen was a member um, and another was perhaps the sister of the king, but the others could be nine male ministers who had married into the royal family. So it's just sort of a the king's wife's club. No, that's no, no. Okay. I'm trying to. I... Yeah, they're just like um, advisors, close advisors. Yeah. Uh, the mm-hmm. ministers ruled over their own estates and had some judicial power, such as imposing the death sentence on those found guilty of serious crimes. Which I guess some judicial powers, some judicial powers, like determining who lives and who dies. Um, yeah. Ministers yeah. were served by female servants, much like the young men who served the king. The difference was that these women could also be concubines of the king. The senior wife yeah. of the king, known as the Mazera, did have real power and was responsible for relationships with foreigners. I think it means political relationships. No, I. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Was responsible for relations with foreigners. Well, I was just thinking, I was like, I wonder if they were counted. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Um, so the Portuguese unwittingly became middlemen between India and the Mutapa's smaller kingdoms in their bid to control trade in the region, which was also fueled by rumors that the biblical minds of King Solomon were held by the ruler of Mutapa. It's like, God, which, Solomon like, and Sheba get out yeah, of all right? of this. 
Um, the kingdom of Mutapa wielded such power as an wielded such power as an entity that it acquired a subsidy from every captain who took office in Portuguese Mozambique and imposed a fifty percent tax levy. Um, <laughs> On all trade goods imported, which, dang, yeah. they had they had a lot of a lot of clout. Yeah, they had a good thing going here. Um, but the kingdom's decline began in the early 17th century due to factional infighting, uh, which gave the Portuguese an opportunity to make Mutapa a vassal state. Right. And so on that note, we will wrap this up with something that is a whole other pile of yikes, but it's something that we need to acknowledge since it radically changed things all across Africa. And that is something that is known as the scramble for Africa, which sounds kind of fun. Yeah, like scramble is usually like delicious and quirky and served with mimosas. But this time it's to talk about like the worst thing one of the worst things that humans have ever done to other humans yeah and we've done a lot of terrible things to each other yeah well this one's not fun so the scramble for africa was the occupation division and colonization of african territory by western european powers during the period of the new imperialism between 1881 and 1914 so In 1870, only 10% of Africa was under formal European control. By 1914, so 35-ish years later, it had increased to almost 90% of the continent, with only Ethiopia and Liberia remaining independent, but then Italy occupied Ethiopia in 1936. This is like 100 years ago. Yeah, super recent. This is, I know we talk about like ancient stuff all the time here, but this isn't ancient. Nope, this is real recent. Woof. Uh, Continuing in recent times, the Berlin Conference of 1884, which regulated European colonization and trade in Africa. Oh, good. I'm so glad that it was regulated. Is usually referred to as the ultimate point of the scramble for Africa, since there was so much warring and squabbling between various European empires in the last quarter of the 19th century, the partitioning or splitting up of Africa was how those Europeans avoided warring amongst themselves over Africa. The later years of the 19th century saw the transition from informal imperialism, which was conducted by military influence and economic dominance, to direct rule, bringing about colonial absolute imperialism. So that happened. Yeah. And And so this is something that um, when you think about today, um, like nations in Africa today that are um, that experience civil wars and like um secessions and like forming new countries coups and coups and like yeah. changing their names like Swaziland became Eswatini just this um uh became Eswatini just like this past year um this is like the fallout of getting carved up having like political movements completely dismantled like genocides occurring like pitting groups against each other like it wasn't that long ago and um so another show if you want to listen to another podcast the grown-ups among our listeners um there's a podcast called behind the bastards in which robert evans looks at figures in 
relatively con- like con- modern history and like contemporary figures. And he talks a lot about um, specific individuals who are directly affected by the scramble for Africa. Um, so that's cool. GTK, as they say. You mean good to know. Um, yeah. So listeners, we come to the end. <laughs> and as we said in the first of this pair of episodes... Not only is Africa very, very big, but it has a, a vast history, not just of empires either. It's like the entire human story starts in Africa. So like humans, yep. full stop. So and, and we're you'll on, know that, we're on a scale of millions of years. Yeah. So you'll know that if you've listened to our human evolution series, which you should. Um, so really, we've just scratched the surface of the archaeology and history of different cultures in Africa. And so you can be you can bet your biffy that We'll be coming back to it in the future. <laughs> and I really value my Biffy. Yeah. So what is my Biffy? I, this is a all ages show. <laughs> okay. I don't know what a Biffy is. Well, okay, cool. Right in. Well, that's good. Tell me what a Biffy <laughs> is. <laughs> the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Tell us what a Biffy is. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you as always for listening. And we will be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which you can find on Apple podcasts, SoundCloud, google play and wherever else you get your pads yeah and you can help us out by leaving reviews and stars and emojis at all those places yeah please do it really helps us out and helps other people find us you can find us on facebook at the dirt podcast on twitter we are at dirt podcast and on instagram we're at the dirt pod and all of that comes together on our website thedirtpod.com. and Again, if you have any idea what a Biffy is, you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And we put out extra bonus content for our Patreon subscribers, and you can access that for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash thedirtpodcast. Yeah, you want to see videos of our faces? We got those. We do. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.